0: and always will be, skeptics joke, but a series of exciting breakthroughs have some experts convinced that we're nearing a fusion revolution that could deliver inexhaustible, abundant, clean energy. My guest today is Arthur Turrell, and we'll be discussing whether fusion reactors are on the horizon, the advantages fusion may have over renewable sources of energy, and what government's role should be in developing this technology. Arthur is deputy director at the Data Science Campus of the Office for National Statistics in the UK and the author of The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion, and the Race to Power the Planet. Arthur, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, Thanks, Jim. And uh, as we were just saying in the break there, um, really excited to be on and to be uh, among your roster of really exciting and interesting guests like Azim Azar and Ed Glazer.
0: Uh, Excellent. Uh, Very generous. Thank you. Uh, A skeptic might say, in fact, I'm guessing some skeptics have said in the past that nuclear fusion is the future of energy, and always will be. Yet, over the past year, it seems to me, as someone who previously did not follow fusion and the developments very closely, that there's been a lot of activity. I know these are just a few headlines from the New York Times. Compact nuclear fusion reactor is, quote, very likely to work, studies suggest. And these two headlines are from over the past month or so. Massachusetts startup hopes to move a step closer to commercial fusion, another one. Laser fusion experiment unleashes an energetic burst of optimism. The New York Times has given the fusion more coverage over the past year than is really typical over a number of years. So what's going on?
1: It's a great question, and it's a really exciting question. And um, I just want to um, re- remind listeners that I'm speaking at personal capacity today, having recently written a book about nuclear fusion called The Star Builders. So I I think um, that cliché joke, I think we can throw that away now, and the reason I say that is because progress has always been dependent not on how long uh, something takes, but on the level of investment and human ingenuity that is being put into something. And the the investment and the human ingenuity that's been put into fusion is starting to demonstrate some really interesting breakthroughs uh, recently. And if I take the biggest of those, probably the biggest in the last kind of five years has been the emergence of a private sector in fusion, which suggests that there's some market confidence. Investors must think that they're able to get some return, whether from fusion energy or from technologies related to fusion, Um, So that is changing the game and it's also increasing the pace of progress because I think it's encouraging private and public alike to up their game. So that's one thing that's going on. The other thing is that some of those improvements and developments in public laboratories are starting to kind of uh, emerge from uh, the drawing board into kind of practical application. So there have been a number of technological breakthroughs, things like superconductors, which allow for new types of fusion, experimental fusion reactor design. And there have just been some experimental breakthroughs as well. Um, so for instance, there's, a, there's been an enormous result on the National Ignition Facility, which is uh, trying to do a type of fusion called laser fusion, which is based at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in, in California uh, recently, where they've demonstrated a world record beating um, net energy gain. Uh, from fusion. So, um, you know, the breakthroughs, the experimental results, not just in laser fusion, but actually in the other approach to fusion, uh, called magnetic confinement fusion too, uh, have really given the whole field a sense of optimism. And I would say it's the most exciting time in fusion, definitely for decades, but probably ever, actually. And uh, even though I'm saying, you know, a lot of things have happened recently, we are actually pretty much on the path that was, you know, if, if I look at it in kind of a Moore's Law style, um, we are just carrying on the path that was established a long time ago. It's just that that path is now taking us close to a point where the problem ceases to be. Can we get more energy out than we put in? And it starts to become how can we you know, start to turn this into a, an energy source instead of a scientific experiment?
0: My uh, very, very basic understanding is that there are, and please correct me, that there are two main approaches, both of which you mentioned. There's sort of the laser ignition approach, and sort of the magnetic containment approach. Could you briefly explain what each of those is trying to do?
1: There's actually a third one, which you can see if you go outside right now, which is gravitational confinement. And that is how the sun does nuclear fusion. And of course, we can't do that on Earth. And it would be a very bad idea for us to try. For practical fusion on Earth, we need to find a way to contain material or fusion fuel that is at at least tens of millions of degrees. 60 million degrees is is the absolute minimum. That's four times hotter than the core of the sun. So you can't put this stuff in a container uh, because it would melt the container. It would dump its energy. The fusion reactions would stop. So, fusion is hard to start and easy to stop, which is one reason why it's uh, very safe as well. So, um, how can you need something invisible that doesn't touch uh, the fusion fuel to confine it so that the energy stays inside and further reactions can go once they've been kicked off or ignited? And the two main ways that people are trying to do this, as you say, are magnetic confinement fusion and what is sometimes called laser fusion, but it actually belongs to a large group called inertial confinement fusion. Now, in the magnetic confinement fusion case, the stuff that's actually uh, that you get in fusion fuel, the stuff that the Sun is made out of, is the fourth state of matter. After solids, liquids and gases, you get this stuff called plasma. And it's made up of what you get when atoms are ripped apart, uh, because there's so much energy around, into their constituent parts of positively charged nuclei and negatively charged electrons. And the thing about charged particles is they interact with magnetic fields. And in magnetic confinement fusion, essentially what's created is a magnetic trap of fields that these charged particles get stuck on. And so when they're doing fusion, they stick around rather than singing off away into the walls of the experiment, at least in principle. Inertial confinement fusion takes a very different approach. And in fusion, you're always looking for temperature, density, so particles that are close together, and confinement. And if you reduce one of those, then you have to up the other two. Um, what inertial confinement fusion says is um, we won't bother trying to confine it at all. We're just going to bring together something at the perfect conditions for fusion, temperature and density, for a brief moment and just let it rip. And a brief moment, it is, it's the time it takes a sound wave to cross the fuel once it's been kind of assembled. Um, But a brief moment is a very long time in nuclear physics, and it's long enough for a billion, billion reactions to happen. And, you know, in terms of bringing this fuel together at the right temperature, uh, and, and density for just that brief moment, you've got various different options, and one of them is to use laser energy because you can squeeze a lot of energy into a small amount of space and a very short period of time with a pulse of light, and create those conditions.
0: To know that it is working scientifically, that I think even use the phrase net energy gain. So what is that? And what does that tell you differently than something called the wall plug energy ratio?
1: Yeah, so I'm really glad you asked this question. It is so important to make this distinction. I think where most people start from is, you know, they might see a headline saying nuclear fusion is close. And we have to be really careful about what we mean by nuclear fusion. And the first thing that sometimes people mean is just doing some fusion reactions, but that's easy. And experiments can do it all the time. And People have even done it in their backyards or in their garages, which I don't recommend, but is possible. So that's not kind of interesting here. The next phase and the thing that lots of scientists around the world. In fact, there's over 100 experimental fusion reactors uh, operational or being constructed right now. Uh, are trying to do is demonstrate scientific net energy gain. And that's about creating an experiment where you put in a certain amount of energy and you get a, at least as much energy back out. And the reason why that's such an important benchmark or, or milestone is because an energy source that you can't get more energy out of than you put in is no good, obviously. Um, and people are interested in fusion on earth for, for you know, as a clean energy source. Um, so scientific uh, gain is is has been the kind of next milestone for many decades now um but experiments are are pretty close to that but there are milestones beyond that and the next one beyond that is something that you called uh, war plug energy gain and, and that's um And sometimes I call it the the energy it takes to keep the lights on in the facility, so if you imagine you've got this experimental reactor it's the energy to charge up the the capacitor banks, a type of battery, it's the energy to keep the diagnostics running, it's the energy to keep the lights on. It's all of that um, peripheral uh, machinery that you need to do a fusion experiment that isn't just about the reactor, the, the experiment, the scientific bit itself. And that requires, again, not of 100 percent, so one unit of energy out for energy in, but again, that's uh, appreciably more than that. So maybe, you know, it depends on the reactor, but um, I think what people would really like to achieve is at least 30 times energy out for energy in. Um, now, that sounds like a long way away from one that, that
0: Yeah, that does sound like a long
1: way away. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the nature of fusion is that it is uh, a process that scales quite incredibly. and to give you a sense of that i'll just say that in, in 2018 laser fusion on the national ignition facility the record that they'd hit was three percent of net energy gain of that's um three percent where they're trying to get to a hundred percent um but between 2018 and the latest results which came out uh, just last month in fact um they went from three percent to 70 percent so they got a um a massive increase it wasn't going from three percent to four percent it was going from you know three percent to seventy percent and that's because this is um the uh very small changes in initial conditions can produce very much bigger uh outcome uh outcomes and so you know when they're making improvements they're getting factors of three or six or even 20 out in terms of energy gain um, so when you think about it like that, they're not actually very far away um, from uh, a war plug game potentially.
0: Is the private sector favoring one approach over the other? Again, we don't know who you know, who's going to quote unquote win, but there's, there seems to be more sort of innovation momentum on one side on one particular approach or technology than the other.
1: That's a really good question. I think it's so early days that from. A kind of societal point of view. Uh, it's really great that people are exploring lots of different options because we, we just don't know which one is going to a work first, um, at least you know, f- on the scale for a power plant, or, or b be you know the most commercially viable, uh, which is incredibly important too. So it's great that they're pursuing different options. I'd say there were slightly more fusion private sector fusion firms I'm aware of that are pursuing magnetic confinement fusion. But that technology has been around longer. It's been out in the open a lot longer as well. So more details of it are public um, as compared to inertial confinement fusion. But there are, you know, a a non-zero number of private sector fusion firms pursuing the inertial approach too. And, you know, in terms of the the recent breakthrough at NIF, that was uh, an inertial fusion machine. But both are really promising. And I think it's great that that people are trying out every, every kind of option here.
0: Certainly one way to look at this is that government scientists have been working on this for a while, and now private you know that didn't work So now the private sector has swooped in and they're and they're and they're making great gains. But it's really obviously it's really a case, uh, much like uh, the private space industry is that the private sector is building on all kinds of research that's uh, that that's that's gone before. Is technology at a state that it's really that there is a clean handoff to the private sector or, or are there still sort of more basic research kinds of things that government needs to do?
1: I think that the quickest path to fusion is going to be a partnership between the public and private players. The public sector does some things really, really well and some things not so well. And the private sector does some things really well and some things not well. And, you know, part of fusion is this big laboratory scientific exploration, uh, understanding the physics behind this state of matter plasma that's incredibly badly behaved and and not always that well understood. And, you know, really breaking through the, the frontier scientifically. And some of it is about how do we do this on a scale that's relevant for power generation, repeatably, reliably, resiliently, um, how do we make it modular so that we can improve the learning rate with construction? How do we bring down the capital costs? And that's the thing where the private sector can really contribute. And I think the Department of Energy has kind of recognised this with their kind of milestone-based uh, programs, where they're, you know, making some of the public money available to private firms who can reach certain goals, you know, which that are going to need to be reached to get to a future where fusion can actually deliver energy.
0: Is that kind of basic science? Has that sort of been done and that's understood and now we're moving on?
1: I wouldn't say so, no, Um, but I wouldn't say that it's just going to be the preserve. Some of the science is not just the preserve of the um, public laboratories either. You know, I think the private sector can get involved in that. Where where I'd say we are is that it's pretty clear how to get scientific net energy gain now. Um, but I think what, what we don't understand is necessarily all the ins and outs of that. Um, so, you know, we, we've got very, very close with 70% once and um, magnetic confinement fusion kind came also quite close. Uh, that was actually back in, back in the 90s. Um, so we kind of, you know, got, got there a little bit, but I think we can understand how to really reliably uh, do that on these big um, government machines, which which have, after all, gotten closer than the private sector machines have to date. Um, where I think the um, public sector, you know, fusion efforts might go next is on working some of the on some of the other big challenges of um, you know turning fusion into a, a, an energy source, and that's about um, being self sufficient in the fuel for fusion, which involves some complicated physics on the material science of how do we build reactor walls that can withstand this kind of energy release, which is not because necessarily it's a lot of energy, although it is because it comes in a particular type in the form of high energy particles. Um, And how do we, um, you know, uh, how do we get the heat out of fusion reactions and ultimately do something that's actually quite boring, which is use it to turn water into steam to drive turbines, which we've done many times before, but that first step of getting heat energy out of the fusion reactor is, is something that people need to work on too. And I think all of those things, the public or private sector could, could make uh, progress on, but right now there are public sector facilities around the world gearing up um, to try and tackle some of those challenges, particularly in the UK and, and Japan.
0: Why do we need star machines? If we need them, for clean energy isn't that handled or will be handled by existing technologies as you've written in the book we've seen a bit you know a big decline in in solar costs and people seem very excited about 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 renewables so if it's for climate change aren't these sort of well understood technologies aren't they the road forward rather than things which you just uh, the star machines which you just conceded there still needs to be a lot of research on If it's not for that, then do we really need them at all for any other reason?
1: That's a really good question. Look, all of the star builders I spoke to, all of the engineers, physicists, uh, mathematicians, computer scientists, entrepreneurs who are working on nuclear fusion energy that I spoke to are absolutely convinced that renewables are going to be a key part of our energy supply. Uh, That's a given. And they're all convinced that, you know, climate change is a Problem, and that you know fossil fuels are on the way out. Um, so I think everyone agrees on that. Um, why do we need fusion then if if we're going to get lots of energy from renewables? Well, I, I think you know they're already going to be a big part of reaching net zero and, and beyond. Absolutely, they're, renewables, certain types, are already the cheapest form of power, except keeping existing nuclear fission plants open. Um, but. I think in, in almost any anything uh, you do in life it's useful to have a portfolio of things with different strengths and weaknesses that you can draw upon so for instance if I think about the you know advantages of renewables they work right now and they're very cheap but on the disadvantages side the energy that they tap into is very very diffuse it's spread out over large areas and that means that they need vast areas to work so for example to power the UK solely using onshore wind turbines would mean covering 17% of the country with turbines, which is a huge amount. It's absolutely enormous. And as we've found um, this summer in the UK, uh, the the kind of haul of energy from renewables is not always reliable. So we've had a very unwindy summer um, in the UK here. Sadly, it hasn't been that sunny either. Um, but so you know sometimes you want uh, types of power that aren't so reliant on the weather to provide that that baseload energy now it's true that you know batteries are going to play a large role in this as well and help us kind of turn day into night when it comes to renewables but some of the star builders I spoke to were skeptical about um, batteries ever scaling up uh, to cover the whole year Um, but I think the the other um, the, the other point here is that fusion could potentially provide energy at very large scales too, um, and without using up lots of area. And that is useful for all kinds of reasons. Um, but one of them is even if we you know, don't get fusion energy till after net zero, we can start to suck down that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere and instead of just level off the curve of CO2 that we've emitted, start to actually reverse it and hopefully reverse some of the harms too. Um, so that's one reason. Another reason in the long run why we might want fusion energy, um, and excuse me if this sounds rather futuristic, is that we are not going to explore the solar system as a species using a coal-fired spaceship. And in fact, if you look at what uh, you know, uh, realistic trips outside of our kind of solar system's backyard Uh, would have to be powered by, or even the Earth's backyard, I should say. Um, Fusion is one of the best candidates for that because it packs a a lot of energy into a very small amount of space. In fact, it's 10 million times uh, higher energy density than coal.
0: So with a fusion-driven spacecraft, how, how does that change the calculus as far as traveling to the moon, to Mars, the inner planets or the outer planets or beyond?
1: Great question. I, I don't have figures to hand, but my understanding is that the time to get to Mars and back is cut substantially um, to um, uh, you know, something that is feasible um, if you can use a fusion rocket instead of um, a conventional rocket. And it's all about the fact that you don't have to carry as much fusion fuel with you uh, because it contains a, a lot of energy.
0: When we talk about clean fusion energy, what is the scale we're talking about? Will fusion reactors produce enough energy that will need fewer fusion plants compared to, say, coal plants?
1: So this is all, of course, assuming that you know fusion energy from, from power plants gets there and is commercially viable. So you know, we have to bear that in mind. And there are big, big challenges on the way to that. But as, assuming that that gets solved, then uh, I think fusion energy would be Broadly similar to what you can do with nuclear fission today. So, in in terms of land area, um, you know, orders of magnitude more efficient um, than a say wind farm. You know, we're talking about a few square kilometers to power several million homes. Um, which for a wind farm would would probably take would take up, you know, it's something equivalent to the land area of Washington, DC, for, for about three million homes. Um, so it's much more space efficient. And one would hope, just you know, because there are differences between fission and fusion, actually, I think you know nuclear fission is, is great. And I'm really a fan of it as an energy source. Um, but in, in terms of safety as well, uh, nuclear fusion would like offer an advantage relative probably to all other forms of power. It would certainly be safer than some types of renewables, um, and it would probably be safe. It would almost certainly be safer than nuclear fission as well, which, by the way, in the round is one of the, the most safe forms of energy.
0: Is both the safety issue as well as the nuclear waste issue. Are those the key advantages of fusion over fission? Uh or are there other ones?
1: There's another one as well, which is about nuclear pr- proliferation. So, um, if you are worried about rogue states using the materials involved in fission to construct nuclear weapons, um, th- those materials can be generated in relatively short time. Or, you know, a peaceful fission program can be used as a cover um, for the production of the materials you need for nuclear weapons. And, the, you know, the most extreme type of nuclear weapon is the hydrogen bomb, that makes use of both fission and fusion reactions. But the fusion reactions have to be triggered by fission reactions, and for that, you need the fissile material. And the great thing about nuclear fusion in this respect is that there's no reason for it to involve any fissile material whatsoever. Um, You only need the ingredients for fusion, which are kind of useless on their own for nuclear weapons.
0: Do environmentalists, they don't like fission very much, a lot of them, maybe that's changing do they like fusion, especially since it doesn't have that sort of nuclear waste issue?
1: Yeah, so I I think you'd have to ask some environmentalists. My sense is that the mood is changing a little bit on fission because there's a trade-off there, right? You know, what do we think is the biggest problem here? Is it the really long-lived radioactive waste of which there isn't, you know, very much generated? Or is it climate change? And right now, climate change to me certainly seems like the bigger challenge that we face uh, on on planet Earth. But... um, I think there's reasons why environmentalists would generally prefer fusion. And, you know, there's obviously a reason why people sometimes talk about fusion as the holy grail of energy production, even if all energy production forms have pros and cons. Um, and yeah, as you say, the um, f- well, fusion doesn't produce zero radioactive waste, but what it does produce, it doesn't produce it as an output of the fusion reactions itself. Um, The radioactive waste that we think will be produced is from the chamber being activated over the period of its lifetime. Um, So rather than radioactive waste coming out all the time, what you end up with is at the end of a plant's life, you need to decommission uh, the reactor chamber. And, you know, the best guesses suggest that that will be um, dangerous for a much shorter period of time, on the order of 100 years, um, as compared to the... uh, waste that you get produced as a part of ongoing processes in fission, which although small in volume is dangerous for a lot, lot longer than that.
0: I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about different um, technologies, things they're working on, such as autonomous cars. You talk to those guys and you walk out of that and you think this thing is going to happen. It's going to happen soon. You know, It's very exciting. I'm sure you felt that excitement and you have to sort of temper yourself now that you now that you've sort of you've written this book and you've you've had a chance to breathe a little bit, what what is sort of the reasonably optimistic take on when I'm going to be able to flip out a light switch and that's gonna be fusion supplied electricity to my light bulb?
1: So let's start with the, the big, big picture here. Fusion is the most ubiquitous energy source in the universe. It, it powers stars, it was around in the Big Bang, it's around in supernovae. It's kind of embarrassing that we haven't managed to do it on Earth in a way. Um, So I think humanity will get there. It's the most energy rich source of fuel that we can lay our hands on, um, you know, reasonably um, in in the kind of solar system or in the known universe. Uh, So I think we'll want to do it at some point. For those reasons I said about exploring the universe as well. Um, So I'm really optimistic that we're going to do this at some point. Uh, There's kind of extra reasons to do it in the short run. And, you know, I completely hear what you're saying about people being over over optimistic. And in fact, fusion has been terribly guilty of that in its history. You know, people working in fusion have said, oh, it's about to work, you know, we're gonna deliver fusion energy. And they haven't really defined what they mean by that, which is why I was really keen to to get that in earlier. Um, And it's incredibly difficult. You know, fusion is probably the greatest scientific and technical challenge that we as a species have ever taken on. So it's very difficult to do at the small scales that we want to do it here on earth compared to, how it works in the sun, but just because a feat is difficult to achieve doesn't mean we should rule it out. And I think you can never, uh, you can never underestimate the what human ingenuity can achieve. And you know, it might seem wild and fanciful to get this thing that powers stars and happens in supernovas working on Earth, but if you look at human history, so many wild ideas have unexpectedly come to fruition. And I take a recent example here, which is Catalin Carrico's research on mRNA to fight diseases, which seemed such a long shot that she couldn't even get it funded. You know, she got demoted. Uh, But we're really lucky today where we sit here in 2021 that her and her collaborators persevered because some of the most successful COVID vaccines are based on that and a vaccine for malaria as well uh, have been developed with that technology. Um, So, you know, uh, and the vaccines were developed in record time. And that's partly about people dreaming big and persevering, but it's partly, and this comes to a more practical point, it's partly that society said, yes, we are gonna put our weight behind this. We're gonna invest a lot in it and we're just gonna make it happen. And that's what made the difference from this being a kind of technology in principle to a technology in practice that is out there saving lives every day. Um, So I think this, whether we're gonna see fusion energy really depends on if we as a society decide to pursue it, and whether we give it the investment we want, um, but there's lots of evidence from the rest of the universe and from the experiments that have been that have been done that we could get there if we wanted to.
0: Or if you could just name a few of the uh, the private sector companies that you've talked to that whose work you've reviewed, just give it, just give a sense of like who's out there doing what.
1: Yeah, so um, on the inertial confinement fusion side, um, there's a firm called First Light Fusion who are interesting. So instead of using lasers, they're using projectiles to um, kick off the, uh, ignite those uh, fusion reactions. There's uh, another firm who I went to speak to and and visit called Tokamak Energy. Um, So they are using a, a type of technology called a spherical tokamak, and uh, these tokamaks are basically these magnetic traps I mentioned, but the point about making it spherical is you can make it more compact and that has some real benefits from commercial from a commercial point of view and uh, making things more modular. Um, over in the US, one of the firms that I think is really interesting to watch is Commonwealth Fusion Systems because they've been born out of a really well-respected uh, set of uh, researchers and, and a fusion program at MIT. They're also, um, a, using some more uh, compact superconducting uh, TOCMAC uh, type technologies. There are a bunch of others around. Some are more plausible than others, um, but, you know, because they're private sector firms, we don't know all of, all of the details of them. So it can be sometimes hard to compare and get, get a good sense of, of who's ahead with the technologies.
0: My guest today has been Arthur Terrell, author of The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet. Arthur, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Jim.